The unfolding identity of Jesus is a central theme in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those who encountered the Nazarene formed varying opinions about him. Even the twelve, who heard his proclamation of the kingdom of God and witnessed his ministerial work, struggled to comprehend Jesus' true nature. After they watched in astonishment and fear as Jesus quieted the storm on Lake Galilee, they asked, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Luke 8 and verse 25. Finally, after two years of sitting at the master's feet, the apostles were asked to give an account of what they thought about Jesus' identity. Was he one of the old prophets as others speculated? Or perhaps was there more to this Galilean? Peter, likely representing the group, declared what they had come to believe. You are the Messiah of God. Mark 8, 29 and Luke 9 and verse 20. Now, while this confession was both accurate and wonderful, there was still an incompleteness in their understanding about Messiah. Immediately after Peter spoke these words, Jesus surprisingly announced, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 9, 22. Now Peter protested these words from Jesus because evidently in Peter's mind, Messiah doesn't go to Jerusalem to die. He goes to the holy city to be enthroned and crowned king. Yet Jesus rebuked Peter's protest, and after the transfiguration, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9 and verse 51. The question this study seeks to answer is, what does it mean to call Jesus Messiah or Christ? Of course, there are many ways we could approach a study like this one, but we're going to be mostly concerned with Luke's birth narrative, which leads up to an amazing announcement made by angels to some shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. In Luke 2, verses 10 and 11, the angels declare, Do not be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. What did the angels mean when they announced to those Jewish shepherds that the Messiah had been born in David's city? We're going to follow this outline for our study tonight. We'll talk for just a couple minutes about the messianic concept found in the Old Testament, then a little bit about Second Temple Judaism and what the Jews between the Testaments believed about the coming of Messiah. And finally, we'll spend the bulk of our time examining the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. But first, let's talk about the Old Testament. Now, most Bible students are probably familiar with at least the basic meaning of the word Messiah or Christ. It refers to one who is primarily uh, anointed by Yahweh into a specific role, like a prophet, a priest, or especially a king. In the Torah, that's the books of Moses, Messiah is translated as anointed. It's found four times in the book of Leviticus, and it always is used to refer to the Levitical priests. That makes sense. The priests were anointed by Moses to offer sacrifices and to minister in the tabernacle. 
But once the era of the Israelite monarchy dawned, the word anointed, or Messiah, was one of the ways that was uh, used to refer to the kings. Hannah prayed that God would give strength and power to his anointed or messianic king. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 10. You remember that Hannah's son was the prophet Samuel. And it was Samuel who referred to the king who leads Israel as Yahweh's anointed or Yahweh's Messiah in 1 Samuel 12, verses 2 and 3. And David famously refused to raise a violent hand against King Saul because he was the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Messiah. We read that in 1 Samuel 24 and verse 6. So both priests and kings were physically anointed with oil as a sign to the people that God had selected them and that they were ordained unto this special role. Uh, in Leviticus 8.12, we learn that Moses, of course, poured anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then, generations later, Samuel took oil. He poured it on the head of Saul. He kissed him and later repeated this process with David when he took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. You can see all the references there on the screen. And it seems like even prophets were at least occasionally ordained and consecrated in this same way. Like when Elijah uh, anointed Elisha as a prophet in his place, 1 Kings 19 and verse 16. During Israel's United Kingdom era, that's the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon, this connection between Messiah and monarch really became entrenched. God promised King David concerning one of his descendants, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. And this promise that God made to David is continually celebrated and uh, remembered throughout like the book of Psalms, where we see all these passages about the idyllic Davidic king who is referred to as God's anointed son. And this king, this son of God, rules over the whole world from the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 2, which I spoke on last year, is a perfect example of this kind of language. So we have this deep connection in the the Old Testament between Messiah and monarch, established here in the historical books, repeated throughout the book of Psalms. And this is important because the Hebrew prophets almost never use the word Messiah, almost never use the actual word. Yet, of course, much of what the prophets wrote about Israel's future and God's future plans uh, with regards to Israel and the nations have been interpreted by Jews and Christians alike to revolve around a messianic figure. Well, how is that if they never use the word Messiah? And that's because Israel began to understand that Messiah was a king. So when they would talk about a future king, they were talking about Messiah. And the hope that God communicated to David became the hope that God had for all of Israel. They were basically one and the same. Okay, so that brings us then to the end of the Old Testament era where we come to the second temple period and all the things that were written during that time. 
600 years uh, between the time of King David and the post-exilic era. David lived about 1000 BC, and it was in the 5th century BC that the Jews returned to their land and rebuilt the city. And during this return from Babylonian captivity, there was a lot of hope and optimism that now might be the time the anointed king of the line of David will come. Yet... After the people returned to Judah, uh, foreign powers continued to rule over their territory. And while the priesthood was reestablished and the temple was rebuilt and Jerusalem was refortified, you know what didn't happen? There was no enthronement of a Davidic king. They just didn't have one. Uh, but the people of God continued to look forward to that time when the Lord's promises would finally be fulfilled and the words of the prophets would come to pass. During this intertestamental era, the Jews were writing a lot of literature. And these writings document some of the ideas that they had about what God was doing in the world and how his divine plan would finally unfold. However, as N.T. Wright has argued, there was no single monolithic and uniform messianic expectation among first century Jews. And I think this is an important point that I want to highlight. Many times we hear from the pulpit uh, bold, overarching claims about what the Jews expected Messiah to be like. We commonly hear statements like, the Jews were expecting a warrior king who would drive out the Romans and restore Israel to her former glory. And there doesn't really seem to be a lot of historical evidence that that view was widespread or standard. Yeah, it was believed by some, but certainly not by all. In his survey of Second Temple writing, Struckenbrock concludes that the only basic sketch of Messiah that can be drawn is this. Basically, most Jews anticipated some sort of future, that's what eschatological means, a future ruler chosen by God to act decisively against the wicked on behalf of the righteous of God's people, Israel. That's a basic sketch. Wright essentially agrees with these messianic characteristics. He says that the Second Temple Jews who wrote about Messiah were commonly looking for a few things. They were looking for a Davidic king. Yes, that's right. They were looking for a king who would restore God's glory to the temple. They were looking for a king who would bring about some kind of act of judgment. Generally, that judgment would come upon the Gentiles or upon the wicked. But besides these themes, there is very little uniformity about what the Jews believed during this time period. And that makes sense even just when we read the New Testament. We, we see that the world into which Jesus was born was very fragmented. And uh, there were different Jewish groups who criticized each other and opposed each other. While there is evidence, of course, from the New Testament that messianic hopes were high in the first century, it's really difficult to determine what common everyday Jewish people believed and anticipated with regard to Messiah. And really, this shouldn't be surprising because the Old Testament itself doesn't enumerate any kind of concise list of messianic expectations, ideas, and concepts. Oh, there are all kinds of themes 
And they're sort of interwoven together into a rough picture. But man, it's difficult to clearly identify. Really, even the four gospel accounts don't present one core theme with regards to Messiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all emphasize different elements of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah of God. So, with these preliminary thoughts in mind, we're going to turn our attention now to the Gospel according to Luke, the first chapter, to see how he unfolds the birth of Messiah in Israel. Now, considering the varied and multifaceted messianic expectations of the Old Testament and the Second Temple era, I think it makes sense to us that the authors of the four gospel accounts would choose their own particular areas of emphasis when presenting the life and ministry of Jesus. When you read through the gospel according to Mark, you see that Mark focuses on the deeds and actions of Jesus as the narrative builds from Galilee down to Jerusalem and reaches its high point when Jesus is arrested and dies on the cross. And so the suffering of the Son of Man is Mark's strong emphasis when he gets to the high point of his gospel. Now Matthew follows a very similar overall plot line but man, he incorporates all kinds of other material, uh, including lengthy sermons that sort of seem to present Jesus as this great authoritative prophet and teacher. And Matthew includes all these fulfillment texts. Such and such happened that it might be fulfilled what Isaiah spoke of back here in the Old Testament. And so this continuity between Israel of old and the mission of Jesus is emphasized throughout Matthew's account. Luke He's different than both and has his own vantage point. Luke famously dedicated his two-volume work, Luke and Acts, to Theophilus, who seems to maybe have been Luke's patron. Theophilus likely funded Luke's travels as he gathered eyewitness testimony to create his well-ordered account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. We read in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, Luke's theologically rich narrative focuses on the person of Jesus and the nature of God's work through him to deliver all of humanity. Luke wants us to know that salvation has become a reality thanks to Messiah's work. And that salvation is not for the Jews alone. It is for the whole world in keeping with the promise God made long ago to the great patriarch Abraham. Luke talks about Abraham more than any other gospel writer. And that's because he sees this great universality of Messiah's work as one of his core and essential themes. Luke and Matthew are the only accounts which include birth narratives. And while there's some overlap between them, really they differ in pretty dramatic ways. One unique element of Luke is his retelling of the birth of John the baptizer. While all four Gospels discuss John's work and preaching and his significance as the forerunner of Jesus, it's Luke who tells us of his miraculous birth and him being foreordained as a prophet. John's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are introduced to us as members of the tribe of Levi, and the priestly order. 
Luke reports that they were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. However, like several other famous Old Testament couples, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Luke 1, verses 5 through 7. Well, one day, as Zechariah ministered in the temple, he was visited by a heavenly messenger who said the following in Luke 1, verses 12 through 17. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. While the Spirit, with the Spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi's book closes the Old Testament canon, but there's evidence in the Second Temple period that the Jews were looking for the voice of the prophet to once again be heard in the land of Israel. There's this interesting passage in the book of 1 Maccabees. Uh, the discussion here is about Simon, who was the high priest. And they decided that they were going to make Simon the leader of Israel, but his leadership would only continue until a trustworthy prophet should arise who could come and organize Israel's leadership in a way that God had declared. So they were waiting for some prophet to emerge to help them in being organized as Israel, the nation, once again. Now, the angel told Zechariah the priest that the time for this had come, that a prophet was to reemerge in Israel, and that this prophet would be born to that childless couple. The reemerging prophetic voice would accomplish two tasks. Like all the prophets, this prophet was to come to indict Israel and to call the people to repent, and he would serve to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, I want to talk about this language for a minute. The language here that's used to describe John of course, emphasizes his continuity with the Old Testament prophets. This is a prophet just like the prophets Israel used to have ministering among them. But look at how Porter explains this language. He says, John is described in terms of an Old Testament prophet in the wilderness. He's to be filled with God's spirit. He utters the message of a prophet to repent. He's said to be one who goes before the Lord. He's described as being in the spirit and power of the prophet Elijah, seen to be the Messiah's forerunner, possibly citing the prophet Malachi. And Zechariah labels him a prophet of God destined to go before the Lord to prepare the way. So all these descriptions are used by Luke to recall what the old prophets were like and to show that this new prophet is going to come to do the same kind of work they did. In addition to this list here from Porter, I think the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is really meant to invoke another well-known story about a barren couple whose son became a prophet. Like Elizabeth 
Hannah was also barren and childless. Hannah, you remember, took her case to the tabernacle to pray. Well, Zechariah, where was he when the angel appeared to him? He was in the temple. Zechariah consulted, or excuse me, Hannah consulted with Eli, who was the high priest at the time, and Zechariah, he was himself a priest. You remember when Hannah was told she would have this son, she vowed that if God would grant her this son, she said, he will never drink wine nor strong drink. And Zechariah was told the same thing about his son. He must never drink wine or strong drink. I think both of those are reflecting the Nazarite vow, or at least a portion of it. Now, who was born to Hannah? But of course, the prophet Samuel. And who was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth? But the prophet John. Now, we might think, okay, if John is sort of being set up here as the new Samuel, well, what was Samuel's most significant contribution to the long arc of Israelite history? Surely, it was his role in anointing David to be Israel's king. And what then might that imply about John's mission? Seems here that Luke is calling upon this Old Testament paradigm to announce that this new prophet was destined to anoint Israel's new king. When Samuel anointed Jesse's son, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. 1 Samuel 16, 13. And you remember when John immersed Jesus in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Luke 3 and verse 22. This is part of the, the subtle beauty of Luke. Without mentioning Hannah, Samuel, or even David, he casts John in this prophetic role as one who announces and ordains Israel's new king. Remember, of course, that anointing is the key to identifying one who's been ordained and chosen by God for a sacred role and task. And this anointing of the new king would fall upon John the baptizer. Now, after all this happens with the angel and Zechariah, there's a fast forward of time in Luke chapter 1, about six months go by, and we zoom out of Jerusalem and the temple where Zechariah was to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Matthew's birth narrative really focuses on Joseph, but Luke is all about Mary. It's all about Mary. And so just as with Zechariah, the angel Gabriel brings this message to the young virgin girl. Luke 1, verses 28 through 33. He came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, while we might say that Luke was being pretty subtle with the way that he described John 
as the prophet who is the forerunner of Israel's new king, all the subtlety melts away here with this declaration about what Jesus is to be. God gives the son of promise a name just as he'd done with Isaac and says that this Jesus will be the king of Israel. And by the way, as I tried to argue last year when we talked about Psalm 2, the son of the Most High is paralleled in this account with being given the throne of his ancestor David. And I argued last year that sometimes the phrase son of God is not meant to be a reflection of the nature of Jesus. It's not about his divine nature. Sometimes it's just a messianic title. And that's what it is here. He is the son of God in the sense that he is the heir of David's throne. He is Israel's new king. And there can be no doubt that that is what is being recalled in this passage. We have all the connections here to the promise from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. I want to read this paragraph now in its entirety. God said this through Nathan the prophet to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the promise to David. The promise that's being invoked by the angel Gabriel when he visits Mary. So when Mary questions how she, a virgin, could have a child, the angel simply says, the Holy Spirit and the power of God will accomplish it. The child will be called the Son of God, once again affirming his position as the Davidic king of promise. And now, after centuries of silence, New revelation has come to Israel. The forerunner, John, will anoint the king. He is to be born of a priestly family. The king of the line of David is to be born most spectacularly of a virgin girl from Nazareth, for nothing will be impossible with God. Luke 1 and verse 37. Now, the angelic announcements made to Zechariah and Mary are meant to establish one key truth. The king we have been waiting for is about to be born. But there's a lingering question this announcement does not address. And that is this. What kind of king will he be? What is God intending to accomplish through this new Israelite king? And this question right here is answered in two poems, one from Mary and the other from Zechariah. So let's spend a few minutes talking about these passages. We're going to start here in Luke 1 and verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Indeed, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. In the first paragraph here, verses 46 through 50, by the way, this poem is sometimes referred to as the Magnificat. That just comes from the Latin rendering of the word magnify, which in the Vulgate is the first word in the sentence. So this is about uh, magnifying the Lord. That's the Magnificat. And really, that's what the hymn is about. It's a hymn of praise and thanksgiving that God has elected Mary of all people and what her understanding of the purpose of this child to be born means for Israel in, and the world. Now, this first paragraph here really focuses on Mary's wonder. How is it that of all the women in the world, God would choose me? But because he has chosen me, I will be called blessed forever. Generations will refer to me as the one who was blessed. But really, this is the paragraph I want to focus on, verses 51 to 55. Because Mary shifts away from talking about herself to talking about the triumph of God in the world. Now, you'll notice here that all the verbs are past tense, aorist in Greek. But I think because of the prophetic nature of the song, we should understand that Mary is not speaking of what God has done in history. Rather, she is talking about what will happen when Messiah comes into the world. Mary is following a tradition that was established by the Old Testament prophets who would speak of God's future work but use past tense verse, uh, verbs to discuss it. And that was because the prophets were so confident that if God said he would do it, it was as good as done. Mary is doing the same thing here. She's talking about her confidence that God will accomplish all these things when Messiah, Israel's new king, comes to the throne. So what is uh, all this content talking about here? Well, the governing principle of this whole prophetic song is reversal. Mary says, the powerful and the prideful will be scattered and debased by God's strength. The lowly will be exalted. The poor will be fed. The rich will go away with nothing. Mary's reversal theme stems from her own knowledge of the Old Testament. We see all kinds of passages in the book of Psalms about what will happen when God's ideal perfect king finally takes the throne. You should read all of Psalm 72 tonight because that's what the whole psalm is about. When God's ideal king comes, what's going to happen? Verses 12 through 14 says, This king will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He'll take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He'll rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. When I was talking about this material with my wife, she told me there's been a lot of research that babies, when they're still in the womb, can hear their mothers singing. So from before he was even born, Jesus was hearing this song sung by Mary. 
And of course, all we have to do is look at the nature of his ministry to see this is exactly the kind of person he was. One whose ministry focused on helping the needy and pulling down the rich, strong, and powerful. Now, accompanying this great theme of reversal, we have here God remembering Israel. And whenever you see language where God remembers something, it's not that he forgot and just went about his business for a while and thought, oh, I meant to do this thing. Remembrance in this context always has to do with God fulfilling some promise he made in the past. And here, it's God's promise to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's God's promise to do for the world what he always said he would do. When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, the same language is used. God remembered the promise he made to Abraham, and he came down to rescue his people and to lead them through the Exodus. So the remembering actions of God through Messiah are according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. France writes this about the, the hymn here. Mary's song reveals two complementary aspects of the character of God, well known from the Old Testament. He's the mighty warrior who overthrows those who oppose him, but he's also the God of the covenant whose love and faithfulness ensure the ultimate blessing of his chosen people. Mary's Magnificat focuses primarily on how the arrival of this heir of David, this new king, will not just change Israel's ill fortune, it will also impact the whole world. Think about this psalm here, Psalm 98, beginning in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations, the Gentiles. Well, how has he done that? Verse 3 says, he has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This psalm is saying when God remembers to fulfill his promises to Israel, the whole world will take notice. The whole world will see the salvation of God. So even though Mary's song really focuses on what God will do for Israel, we see subtle hints of the universal scope of Messiah's work. Okay, now, after Mary... Luke goes back to John. So we went Zechariah, Mary, Mary, Zechariah, and now we have one more important song recorded in Luke 1, beginning in verse 67. I've got to read this a little quickly here. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his child David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, this is John, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give His people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. That's some beautiful poetic language from the old scriptures. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And I said the main theme of Mary's song was reversal and maybe a secondary theme, remembrance. God fulfilling his promise. Here, Zechariah's spirit-inspired poem focuses mostly on Israel's redemption and salvation, which will be enacted by the Davidic king. And uh, Zechariah tells us that all that's going to happen here is in perfect keeping with the testimony of the prophets. Okay, so we have all this language in this song about being saved from our enemies, being delivered, being redeemed. We have the forgiveness of sins and salvation that comes through the work of Messiah. What's this all about? Well, Joel Green explains the kind of deliverance that Zechariah has in mind here. The appearance of the term redemption determines the required sense of to visit, but also sets Zechariah vis Zechariah's vision of salvation squarely in the context of the Exodus. In that paradigmatic act of deliverance, God redeemed his people and created among them a new community. That's an important line. Redeemed his people and created among them a new community. Verse 71, with its negative description of salvation as rescue from our enemies and from those who hate us, also borrows from the arsenal of scriptural metaphors derived from the Exodus. Israel's Exodus from Egypt sets the stage for Messiah's redemptive work. Look at this from Psalm 106 and verse 47. Save us! O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. If you go back and read this psalm more broadly, you'll find that it's all about Israel who were looking back on the Exodus and they were considering their current plight and they're essentially saying, God, we know that you once delivered us from evil. Save us again, O oh Lord. We need a new exodus, a new deliverance. We need you to come down and do for us exactly what you once did for our fathers. This is the kind of language that Zechariah is using. He seems to be acknowledging that the petition of this psalm is finally being fulfilled. The anointed king of the line of David is coming, and he's coming to lead his people in a new exodus, a new act of deliverance and redemption. So, when Jesus was finally born, shepherds were in a nearby field tending to their flocks. The angel of the Lord appeared in brilliant glory. And he delivered to them a royal birth announcement. To you is born this day in David's city a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. And we don't have time to talk about Savior, which is a whole nother study and a topic. But I want you just to consider the end there. 
the Messiah, the Lord. This is an interesting and unique phrase as it's relayed here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. This is how Edwards explains these titles. The angel identifies the newborn Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Savior. The first two titles appear in tandem, Messiah, Lord, in Greek, a construction found nowhere else in the New Testament. Messiah means God's anointed Davidic king. Lord is the standard, everyone remember what LXX stands for from last night? Septuagint translation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton. That's the sacred name, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. One would expect the construction to read Messiah of the Lord, which is prevalent throughout the Septuagint. Significantly, in this first occurrence of Messiah in Luke, it appears with Lord. The apposition of Messiah Lord is similar to the apposition of Christ King, which comes at the very end of Luke, chapter 23 and verse 2. Both convey that Jesus is not simply the Messiah of the Lord, but the Messiah who is the Lord. Now this would have been a shocking, startling, an amazing announcement to hear directly from the mouths of those angels, assuming angels have mouths. I want to emphasize this point as we draw the study to a close. The gospel, the good news that God has fulfilled His rescue plan through King Jesus, the good news about Jesus' victory over sin and death, the gospel is not about how to escape earth to go to heaven. That is not the good news. The good news is that Yahweh has come down to earth and that he has come to become the anointed king who leads a new exodus of redemption that God has come to be among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is the good news, that Jesus has come to fulfill all that God had promised back in the old days of Israel's ancient past, that God has fulfilled this promise by bringing us the anointed king of the line of David who leads a new exodus for his new covenant people. Zechariah was told that his son would become the prophet who would anoint Israel's new king. Mary was told that her son would sit on David's throne. In response, Mary celebrated God's mercy upon Israel and Zechariah celebrated that this anointed king would lead Israel's new exodus. And all of this culminates with the angelic announcement that Jesus, this unassuming baby, born of a nobody couple, would be the saving Messiah Lord, the perfect heir of David's line, the supreme ruler of the universe. Now Luke would eventually conclude his two-part work by recounting Paul's time under house arrest 
And he says that while Paul was in that condition, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and hindrance. Acts 28 and verse 31. Jesus is the anointed king whose reign over the earth ought to be the proclamation of every Christian. Jesus is reigning on high. His kingdom is present in the lives of men and women around the world. He is the anointed king of the line of David who redeems his people. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's in response to that good news that we follow what we sometimes refer to as the plan of salvation, to bring ourselves in line with the will of God so that we can be a part of the reign of Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Lord.